Will the last one to leave please turn out the lights? That's a sign that you see in churches and church halls and other public buildings and clubs and all kinds of places. And over the years, it's become a slogan that people have started to use when things go wrong within an organization. Back in 1992, just before the general election, Neil Kinnock was the leader of the Labour Party. He had reformed that party. They were riding high in the opinion polls. Everybody thought that Labour was going to win the general election, not least Neil Kinnock, who in a, a famous, maybe now an infamous speech to the party faithful said, go back to your constituencies and prepare for government. And yet on the eve of that election, the Sun newspaper ran with this headline, if Kinnock wins today, will the last person to leave Britain turn out the lights? And famously, Kinnock and the Labour Party lost that general election. Some people feel at least in part because of the impact of that headline and that newspaper's campaign. Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that if the resurrection is not true, then my preaching and your faith is futile. It's absolutely pointless. And it's as if he's saying, if the resurrection isn't true, will the last person to leave church please turn out the lights? because we might as well go home, and we might as well never return. Next Lord's Day, we would actually be better off going out for a walk or a run or a cycle or a swim, looking after our physical fitness, because when you think about it, that's all that would really matter, what happens to us here and now. We'd be better spending our money and our time doing something else. And whenever I put it like that, you begin to realize just how risky and dangerous a statement this was for Paul to make to a church. I don't know about you, but it makes me want to check out what he has to say about the resurrection in this chapter of Scripture. And that's what we're going to do for a few moments tonight. Please turn with me again in your Bibles to that passage that we read in 1 Corinthians 15. And as I was saying earlier, we give this chapter a very full treatment this time last year. And we're not going to try and do that in one sitting tonight, don't worry. But instead, let me leave you with three things that Paul tells us about the resurrection in this chapter of Scripture. First of all, he reveals to us that it is crucial. He says that the resurrection is really important. He says in verse 3, for what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance. These are the most important things of all, the things that the Corinthian Christians and all believers need to be reminded of. 
that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. These are the key moments in Christ's ministry, and they are the central and most important things that we believe as followers of Jesus. And you'll see that Paul tells us that they happened according to the Scriptures. We need to understand that phrase in its context. It's not that Paul is talking here about what we read of in the Gospels, as important as those Gospel accounts are. Remember that at the time of writing, the Gospels were under construction. Now, when Paul talks about it being according to the Scriptures, he is talking about the Scriptures that he and his fellow believers would have used, what we know to be the Old Testament Scriptures. And he's saying all of these things happened in exactly the way that the Scriptures foretold. They happened in the way that we knew they would because of what God's Word tells us. And this is really important for us to see and understand about the Christian faith. Because all the way through the history of the church, but particularly in our generation, people have tried to mold Christian belief around their outlook. We see that happening all the time. Just switch on Radio Ulster in the morning and listen to Thought for the Day. And more than often, it is someone molding things around their outlook and their view of the world. And that seems to be the prevailing view of people within churches today. Well, I'll believe the bits that seem reasonable to me. I'll believe the bits that I feel I can sign up to, but I'm not going to bother with those bits that don't compute with my understanding of the world. And this is exactly what was happening in the church in Corinth. People there were saying, or some people were saying, well, yes, we, we, we certainly believe in Jesus. No doubt about that. And we might even go as far as to say that we believe that Jesus rose again. But as for this idea that other people will be resurrected, no way. That, that's not going to happen. That can't be the case. And so, Paul takes time in this part of his letter to explain the importance of our belief in resurrection. And as we'll discover towards the end, what he says is that Jesus' resurrection is a complete game changer. It has massive implications for those who truly believe in them, for they will share in His resurrection. And Paul begins by challenging those with limited faith in the power of God. He said to them, well, if God can't raise us to life again, that means He couldn't raise Jesus to life again. And therefore, the whole thing is just one big lie. And he tells us, if God didn't raise Christ to life again, our faith is, as he puts it in verse 14, useless, 
It is futile. As he says in verse 17, it is a complete waste of time. In fact, the shocking thing is that Paul goes even further. Look at verse 19, where he says, if only for this life we have hope in Christ, we are to be pitied more than all men. Now, we might tend to think, well, you know, even if the resurrection wasn't true, and if there wasn't anything at the end of it all, at least we had a nice time together in the church. At least, you know, we had this comfort and this time together, and we had some kind of hope. Paul says, no. You, Christians, church people are to be pitied more than anybody else because you were living one great lie. Why do you think he said to these particular believers that they were to be pitied more? Well, think about the context of this early church, a church that endured great persecution and suffering, and for what? For a better life here and now? Our belief that Jesus rose again through the power of God, and that same power will raise us who trust in Him, is so important. Paul lets us know that the resurrection is crucial. And so, therefore, his second point is a really good and important point to hear. He then tells us that the resurrection is certain. He says the resurrection is really true. Look at verse 20, and he is adamant, but Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And when he states that, is this Paul working from blind faith? Well, think about Paul's background. And this was a guy with a legal and a forensic mind. And so he carefully presents the evidence for Christ's resurrection. He carefully takes the Corinthian believers through the appearances of the resurrected Jesus to Cephas or Peter. And from this morning, hopefully you understand why he is mentioned first, because of the incredible impact that meeting with the risen Jesus had on Peter's life, this failure who was forgiven and restored. He then refers to the twelve who Jesus met with at various times, his disciples. Then later, he refers in verse 7 to all the apostles, probably meaning that this was a moment when he was with all of his apostles in the one place at the one time. Then he mentions James, who most scholars believe was the brother of Jesus, who at first did not believe. Then he points out that there were 500 people that Jesus appeared to, most of them at the time of writing still alive. But then Paul lists one other person whom the risen Jesus appeared to, and that was himself. And you might think, well, that's a bit of a cheek of Paul. Is he bigging himself up here by adding himself into this list? Well, no, look on. It's quite the opposite. Right at the heart 
of his encounter with the risen Christ is God's grace. Look at verses 8 to 10. There he describes himself as being abnormally born. And the, the, the term that he uses there was actually quite an offensive term. He says of himself that he is the least deserving to be an apostle because of his persecuting past. But he says, by the grace of God, I am what I am. His grace to me was not without effect. It did the job. And he says in verse 10, of anything that he had been able to do, serving the Lord, yet not I, but the grace of God that was with me. I think there are particular people that the experience of Paul speaks to, because often I meet people who have this same intellectual forensic mind, who think that they know the score, as Paul thought that he knew the score. And then Jesus caught up with him. The least likely person to bow before Jesus to acknowledge him as Lord and to make him Savior. And maybe that's you here tonight, that your instincts tell you this Christ thing and this resurrection thing in particular, nah, it couldn't be. But Jesus has a way of catching up with and meeting people who think in that way. In the recent past, there have been notable examples of this. Lee Strobel, who was an award-winning journalist with the Chicago Tribune, and who was a graduate of Yale Law School. And he was so skeptical about the whole Christian thing. He was a complete cynic. And then his wife became a Christian. And to satisfy his intellectual curiosity, he decided to, to investigate the story of Jesus as a journalist would. And he was saved. And later, he wrote that book, The Case for Christ, or Josh McDowell, who had an unhappy early life, living with an alcoholic father, suffering abuse. And he got away to college as soon as he, as he could, and he decided to write a paper looking at the Gospels and their historical accuracy, and so began a life of investigating these things, a life that led him to becoming a believer and later writing the book Evidence that Demands a Verdict. And if you're a cynic, if you're a skeptic, these books are still available, and I would recommend them to you, because Paul is absolutely certain. He says the resurrection is real. The resurrection is true. But then one final point that Paul makes about the resurrection, and I hope you'll excuse the, the license with language here. He says that it is class. There's a bit of a, a Belfast kind of phraseology coming in. He says the resurrection is really good news. Look at how Paul introduces 
the subject of the resurrection in verse 1. And he says, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. He continues in verse 2, by this gospel you are saved. If you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, and we know that that word gospel literally means good news. We have a very narrow definition of what that gospel involves, what it is all about. Many of us think that the gospel is simply to do with the cross and what we gain from Jesus' death. And of course, that is a massive part of it. We've been recognizing that all the way through the Easter period, not least in our praise tonight, and we should do so. But it's important to see Paul's summary of the whole gospel, the whole of the good news story in verse 3. So that he says, for what I received, I passed on to you of first importance that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that He was buried, that He was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So that the resurrection is a massive part of this good news. Remember what the problem is here in Corinth. It's not so much that people are doubting Christ's resurrection. They are doubting the resurrection of others. People can't see how the resurrection of Christ relates to them. And so that's what Paul explains to them in the rest of chapter 15. And Christ is described in verse 20 as the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And the meaning of that changes everything. It's simply saying that Christ is the one who leads the way for His people, who goes ahead of them into death, and then who goes ahead of them into resurrection and newness of life. Paul continues in verse 21, for since death came through a man, the resurrection of the dead comes also through a man. For as in Adam all die, so in Christ all will be made alive, but each in turn. Christ, the first fruits, then when He comes, those who belong to Him. And people, this is the hope of the resurrection. It not only proves God's power, it is something that those who belong to Christ will share in. So, let's make sure that we understand this good news. And let's be clear who it is that will find this resurrection life in Christ, because Paul is clear in verse 23 that it is those who belong to Him who belong to Christ. So, that tonight, and I need to be really clear about this, apart from Christ, I can offer you no good news, no hope, no peace, no future. I've talked before about humanist funerals, and in the time since, many more 
of you within our church family have found yourselves attending funerals that are humanist, funerals that are completely devoid of gospel hope. And so once again, it caused me to look back at those words that I shared with you before, that committal for a humanist funeral as published by the British Humanist Association. And just listen to these words again. I'm almost loathed, honestly, I'm almost loathed to read these words tonight, but please listen to them. That it's said of someone here in this last act, in sorrow, in love and appreciation, we commit, and then the person's name, to its natural end. And I don't know about you, but that completely depresses me. And I think of the contrast when I and other gospel ministers here tonight lead the funeral of someone who we know loved the Lord Jesus Christ and died in Christ so that we can proclaim, world death is your victory. World death is your sting. The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. People, the, the resurrection, it's crucial. It's really important. It's certain. It's really true. And yes, it's class. It's really good news. And it's not just good news for one Sunday in the year. It is good news for every Lord's Day and every day of our lives as given to us by the Lord. And may it be good news that changes you in this week that lies ahead for God's glory and for Christ's honor. Amen.